Okay, so we're going to be starting a series on the church over the next six weeks. Um, we've been going as a church publicly for um, two and a half years now. Never done a series on the church. Obviously, I've referred to the church throughout teaching, but never taken any time to focus in on specifically what the church is and all the implications of that. So we're going to spend six weeks looking at that. The way we're going to do it is by delving into the book of Revelation and looking at um, some churches that Jesus spoke to there in that book, um, Seven Congregations, uh, and we will work through some of those letters, um, which I'm going to speak about in just a moment. We're going to work through them to understand for ourselves um, what Jesus wants from his church. A quick bit of background on the book of Revelation, and it's this. Written by the Apostle John, around about AD 90, uh, at this stage, John was probably approximately 70 years old. Um, the other 11 of the disciples had all died at this point. Uh, obviously, Judas had killed himself after betraying Jesus. Um, all of the others had died martyrs' deaths. Peter was crucified upside down. James was beheaded. And they all met their deaths in a various uh, pretty horrifying ways because of their faithful witness to Jesus Christ. Um, John, however survived uh, history says an attempt on his life where they placed him in a cauldron of uh, boiling oil but it uh, didn't kill him um, he survived that and was sent to the Isle of Patmos which is really I guess kind of like an ancient gulag if you like it was like a, uh, a mining island where people were exiled prisoners political prisoners and other various prisoners and so here's John an old man um, a slave on the Isle of Patmos uh, and he's he says that on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, he's in the Spirit. And he receives this incredible vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And then what we what we know is the book of Revelation, which was um, given to him from Jesus in a vision. It's, the book of Revelation is probably one of the most dramatic books in the Bible. Um, one of the most terrifying books in the Bible. One of the most hard to understand books in the Bible, but it's a wonderful book and it, it, uh, it, the, the revelation itself promises that to those who read the book aloud and who take in and absorb what's written there will be a blessing and uh, even though there are times where you feel slightly bewildered and what's happening now and don't always understand the symbolism that's going on there's always a blessing in reading this book so I trust that God will bless our efforts as we look at um, the subjects of the church through this book. So what we find is that John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, in the sense that from a human perspective, it appeared that there was a particular chemistry, a particular affection and closeness between John and Jesus. John has the confidence in his own gospel to describe himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Um, I'm sure that if that hadn't been the case, if there hadn't been some manifest affection between them that was slightly unusual, um, he would have been shot down in flames by the others for writing such a thing. We read that at the, um, at the Last Supper, John was leaning with his head on Jesus' chest. There was this intimacy, and they were friends. They, they, there was a, a human love between them, um, which is a, obviously a beautiful thing. And, and yet when John has this vision of the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, he, we're told that he falls on his face like a dead man. Uh, it's just too much for him to bear. This Jesus is definitely the same Jesus, and yet obviously very, very different 
And um, so John is in a bit of a bad way. Jesus has to lay his hand on him and say, don't fear. Jesus says, fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now after this, what we find um, really from the start of chapter 2 of Revelation to the end of chapter 3 is seven addresses made to seven local congregations in the area of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Um, they were seven very real congregations that existed then and the messages given are specifically for them and yet revelation being rich in numerology um, by that i mean um, numerical symbolism um, numbers are very important especially in apocalyptic literature the book of revelation number seven represents completion or perfection so although these letters to these seven congregations were specifically for them and spoke directly into their historical situation not only that these letters are for the complete church down the ages if you like it has these letters have something to say to the church universal down the ages so uh, i'm confident that we're going to get loads from these letters so let's look at the uh, first letter today to the church in ephesus uh, revelation chapter 2 verse 1 to the angel of the church in ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, and you're bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you. And remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now I want to just give you a very brief history of the church in Ephesus. We find first mention of it in Acts 19, which is where it was established. Um, reading through the book of Acts, we've been following Paul's missionary journeys and he comes to Ephesus and uh, it's very dramatic from the start he meets 12 people apparently disciples on the way into the city turns out that actually they haven't really understood about Jesus and the Holy Spirit and so there and then Paul explains the gospel baptizes them um, lays his hands on them they receive the spirit and are prophesying and encountering God and then they go into the city and the church is established in a very remarkable dramatic way Ephesus was the center of occult activity it was known as the temple warden of the goddess artemis and um really benefited in terms of commerce and trading very much from various idolatry and other religions where um, statues and things would be sold and in, in on mass um, paul goes in and begins to proclaim the gospel and has such success that we find that a situation whereby uh, many of those who are into the occult and magic and various dark arts uh, are thoroughly converted to Jesus and bring all their scrolls and manuscripts and various uh, occult paraphernalia and create a huge bonfire in the city. So it's a very, very dramatic time, if you like. It's one of those seasons we read that even uh, handkerchiefs that Paul prayed for would be um, taken back 
um, by people that had come to Paul to their ill loved ones and they would be healed instantly it was just a, it was a wonderful season of gospel breakthrough and that so so the church in Ephesus is established in in, in really an environment of excitement uh, deep and and true conversion um, repentance that's on mass it's wholesale repentance um, and uh, and then we follow through and we find uh, we find that um, Paul on his years later on his way back to Jerusalem where he's eventually arrested he meets with the elders in the uh, in from the Ephesian church and he um he, he really brings a last part in message to them. He says he's not never gonna, they're never going to see him face to face again. He knows he's on his way really to ultimately to his death. And, and so he says this in, from Acts 20. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit's made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and eat from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them and so Paul really in this power of the Holy Spirit foresees that um, this church is going to struggle with doctrinal assault Satan will attempt to bring this church down through heresies beliefs which warp and twist the gospel and affect people's lives and the way that they live and so he warns them about this he says to the elders come on you oversee carefully pay careful attention to yourselves the way you're living and the things you're believing and, and to the flock and um, so Paul, with his apostolic heart and prophetic gift, foresees this happening. And then even throughout Paul's ministry, he sends Timothy there. So the books of 1 and 2 Timothy and the Bible are written to Timothy, who's on location in Ephesus. Paul sent him there to straighten things out. He sent him there because people, as predicted, have risen up and they've caused all kinds of problems. And it seems like the elders at this stage maybe don't have the maturity to deal with it well. So Paul sends Timothy on his behalf to represent him and to really put things in order. That's really... Um, what comes to explicitly as you read those epistles and then we get to the church in Ephesus here in uh, approximately AD 90 and um, and we find that they've grown strong doctrinally we find that they've taken to heart Paul's exhortation they've benefited from Timothy's visit and they're doing very well and Jesus here commends them he says first of all he says I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you can't bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be false. You see, there have been people that have come in, apparently as apostles, try and bring some teaching, try to um, establish their authority. And John, Jesus, through John, commends them. He says, well done. You've, you've seen right through these imposters, and you've, you've found them to be false. You've exposed them. And so... We've, and Jesus commends them for this. Now, I want to just point out that really you're going to become familiar with these two words, I know. Jesus springs it at the start of every letter to the churches. I know. And it's beautiful because really what Jesus is saying is, I know. I know you. You're my bride. You are my church. I know you. I love you. I care about you. He even introduces himself as uh, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Those lampstands be in the churches. Jesus says, I walk among you. I'm involved. I see the pressures that you face. I understand the challenges. I know what goes on in your heart and your mind. I see the relational difficulties. You're working things out. I see how you have to forgive one another and bear with one another. I understand this. I know. I know you. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus knows his church. Jesus knows you. 
He knows he's purchased you with his blood. He knows you. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's true that he knows us better than we know ourselves. We sometimes think, no, God, don't put me through that. I, I can't bear it. Sometimes we think we can't bear it, but Jesus looking in, he knows what he's done in us. He knows what he's worked into us. He says, it's okay, I know that you can. I know that you can. Other times we stroll confidently into a situation. We feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready for this. And Jesus in his mercy closes the door and tenderly speaks to us and says, you know, you're not really ready for that. That, that would actually, that would cause you to, uh, that would cause you some problems that you're not ready for. Um, that would be too much for you. That would overwhelm you. And Jesus knows his church and he says to the Ephesians, I know you, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. And he, he commends them and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, he says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. This is a good church. This is a solid church. This is a church that perseveres. This is a church that has maintained its energy and it's, um, it's a dutiful church. They, they do the things they've started doing. They've continued doing them. Um, and they've endured for his name's sake. There's a, you know, there is an, there's an affection for Christ there. But then there's this correction that comes, which is a, it, it's, a, it's, it, it's like a bolt out of the blue, and it, it, it's a jolt. It causes you to suddenly sit up and think, hold on, this is unexpected, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Now, what does he mean? I've read this time and time again for years, and I've always been impacted by it, because I think in and of itself, you almost come to your own conclusions, don't you? You come to your own conclusions. I guess I've always assumed, well, it's just love for Jesus. You know, it's our first love. And we sing songs about that. You think, well, that's what it is. And But I was musing over this shortly before the sermon and just thinking, well, what does it mean? I need to be clear that I'm not just making assumptions here. And I, I thought to myself, well, if Jesus was to come to me and say to me, Steph, you've lost your first love, what, what would I think he was saying? If I was to look at my life, if I was to hear him say that and then look at my life, what would I think he was saying? And you know, the conclusion I came to is I think he would be talking about my witnessing. That I, I used to, well, I, I used to find it hard to keep my mouth shut about Jesus. I used to find it almost impossible not to speak about him to people. And sometimes, you know, I guess definitely in some people's eyes I'd overstep the mark and perhaps there wouldn't be the, the, um, uh, the wisdom maybe that, some would say is necessary and maybe I was insensitive at times, I don't know, but that's that's what I thought, I thought that, you know, that that's, that's the difference actually now, I have to work a lot harder now to make sure that I'm witnessing and, 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 and sharing Christ with people and uh, and then when I when I came home I thought, yeah, I need to really explore this, what is this first love and so I I turned to a man called G.K. Bill, who's very clever, um, I would imagine very godly, and writes huge commentaries on the Bible, and he's written this huge commentary on the book of Revelation, and here's what he says, he describes it as this, he says, it's quote, the idea is that they no longer expressed their former zealous love for Jesus by witnessing to him in the world. Well, how about that? The idea is that they no longer express their former zealous love for Jesus by witnessing to him in the world. Well, you could knock me over with a feather. I was amazed when I read that. I thought, gosh. And then there's some very interesting scriptures that he brings in that shows really this, um, the scripture, there's a thread, there's a pattern between this idea of losing your first love and 
and not witnessing. So the first one's Matthew 24, Jesus talking about uh, the end times. He says this, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now that's Matthew 24, 9 to 14. But notice this first. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. We've got a similar idea in Ephesus. False apostles, similar idea though. False teaching coming in, attempting to really lead the church astray. Then 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. You think, okay, so we've got false teachers, we've got love growing cold. But then, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. We've got this proclamation of Christ, this witness of Jesus, it's threaded together there. We see there's a prediction there, really, of the situation that the Ephesians will find themselves in. Jesus has spoken about it, I guess, uh, approximately 60 or so years before. He's predicted this. And then if you go to uh, Mark chapter 4, you find something similar. He says, and Jesus said to him, is, is a, Mark chapter 4, verse 21, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing's hidden except to me manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now this is very, very interesting. Because here we have this idea of, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Now what's he talking about there? What he's talking about? Witnessing it. You can see it again in Matthew 5. You're, the, you're a city on a hill. You're, you're the light of the world. Um, it's not to be hidden away. You're to, you're to do your good deeds before men so, so that they will glorify your Father in heaven. It's this, it's this witness of uh, word and of life of Christ. That is where the church is seen symbolically as a lampstand. Through their witness to Christ, they light up the world as they speak of him and as they love and serve the world. They light it up. And, and here Jesus is saying, it's not, it, you bring out a lamp to put it under a basket. Of course you don't. Then he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, which we see again in the, the phraseology in Revelation. And then he says, for the, to, what, to the one who has, more will be given. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So to the one who is in the context is shining their light, to the one who is shining their light, then more, more blessing and resources will be given to them for that. For the one who doesn't shine their light, what they have will be taken away. Well, if we look in Revelation, Jesus says, isn't he? He says, um, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And, and here Jesus says, I'm the one who walks among the lampstands. Here the church is being seen as a witness. First, lesson number one in the series on the church. What is the church? The church is a witnessing lampstand. The church is the light of the world. The church is a city on a hill. And Jesus here says, I'm walking among the lampstands. And you know what? One of these lampstands, you seem to be hidden under a bucket. You're not actually doing what you are called to do, which is witness to me. You're not giving out any light. Well, there's no point you being here if you're not going to give out any light. I'll remove you. Sobering. It's very, very sobering. You see, only Jesus has authority to close churches. The church belongs to Jesus. So only Jesus has the authority. But he can do it. If a church stops doing what it's there to do, then he will close it. And he has every right to do so. Jesus says to them, remember therefore from where you're fallen. Remember, stop and take stock. 
Think about what it used to be like. This is what I was doing before I even read the Courage. I was thinking, oh, what was it? What was it like? What was my first life? What, what, what marked me out as a new Christian? What was it like? Remember, take stock. Wow, I was a bit of a maniac, but I tell you what, I was. I was. A, I was. A, it was a bit like being a force of nature. You know, you're just blown along by the spirit. You got to tell people about Jesus. I told anyone I got the opportunity to. I turn any conversation around. Sometimes it was embarrassing, but what the heck? People have got to know. But I think as you get older, you can get you can get respectable. It's a bit like in the Rocky films. You know, in the Rocky films where many of you would have seen him. He's this he's this raw fighter, and he ends up really by a coincidence of very unlikely circumstances becoming the uh, champion of the world. But then he gets he gets respectable. He he gets comfortable and. Um, he's been a champion for a few years, and he's got his nice big house now, and he's had a bit of plastic surgery, and he's got nice clothes, and you know he's he's not he's no longer the ghetto guy, and uh, and then there's this new guy comes along called Clubber Lang, and Clubber Lang, played by Mr T, what he's hungry, he's like the old Rocky, and he wants to fight Rocky, and Rocky's like sure, but Mickey's trainer, he says no, he says no, you mustn't fight him, and Rocky's like why not, and Mickey looks at me, and Mickey says this, I do it my best Irish, New York Irish accent. He says, you know what? The worst thing that can ever happen to a fighter happened to you. And Rocky says, hey, Mickey, what? What are you talking about, Mick? Mickey says, you got respectable. Oh, Mickey, no, Mickey. Yeah, Rocky got respectable. He used to be raw. used to be hungry. And really, that's what got him to the top. But then once he got there, he got respectable. And he lost it. He lost his edge. Like Rocky, the church in Ephesus have entered into a condition of spiritual inertia. And it just means, inertia means that there's no longer any upward ascent. There's no longer any thrust forward. You're just really remaining where you are. And this isn't a dictionary. The only thing that can break inertia, the only thing that can deal with inertia, is some kind of external force. So Jesus is coming in here to, the, to his church that he loves. And he's coming in as the external force. And he says, repent. Change the way you're thinking. And it's a call to action. Remember. Repent. And then crack on with it. Do what you used to do. Just open your mouth. Just open your mouth. Don't worry about feelings. and Just do the, do the first works. Share Christ. Now I think we live in an age increasingly where... Witnessing is, is a despised thing in the church. And you think, well, why? Uh, well, a lot of it's just satanic. Satan sows in deceptive lying thoughts into the minds of Christians. And Christians be undiscerning and very often not rooted in scripture believe the thoughts and ideas. But, but he also uses, and he uses all kinds of things. But one of the things he uses is, is people that, Christians that witness but, but with word but not with their not with their life, they're hypocrites and give a bad name to Christians and, and it creates an environment where people don't want to hear what Christians have got to say because there's no credibility to what they say because what, well, what good do they ever do? And they're just like me really but they just talk about Jesus all the time and this thing, these, these kinds of ideas, it can, it can really break down and knock the confidence of the believer to really share Christ. But I tell you, we must. I mean, we must. It's what, it's what we do. It's what Paul did. Paul describes... His ministry like this, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone 
and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Colossians 1, 28 to 29. Our master himself, Jesus, just before he ascended, said, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. We have permission, we have authority, we have a commission on us to go and speak up for Christ. And then the warning comes, if you're not going to do this, If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's a unique judgment. We don't read of any of the other churches being threatened with this. I guess you could maybe look at the Laodicean threat and last, the last church of the seven. and It's similar, different imagery, but a similar idea. But this is very sobering. This is what G.K. Bill, the theologian, says. If they do not repent, Christ will come and judge them. They will cease to exist as a church when their very function that defines the essence of their existence is no longer performed. I'll say that again. They will cease to exist as a church when the very function that defines the essence of their existence is no longer performed. In other words, you are a witness in lampstand. You are no longer witnessing. Therefore, you are no longer being what you are. Therefore, we will close you down. We'll remove you. It's not harsh. It's just very, very pragmatic. If you have a racing car with no wheels on it, and no one's going to put any wheels on it, you remove it from the track. You remove it from the garage. You take it elsewhere. Why? Because that car is not racing. It's made to race. It's made to race. You are the light of the world. This is so important. You are the light of the world. Now, you see, one of the heartbreaking observations I make about the church is that they tend to view witness and evangelism as something strange they have to make themselves do, rather than actually just being who you are. That is, you are the light of the world. Jesus doesn't say, be the light of the world, or, or, or come on, can't you... Put on the lamp. No, you are the light of the world. That's who you are now. That's what he's made you. You are a new creation in him. You are the light of the world. He has saved you by his grace. He's made you something that you know you weren't. Now you are. You see, when I became a Christian, I was as shocked as anyone. Why? Because it was very, very apparent to me that this wasn't something I'd done. I'd given my life to Christ, but something had happened, I'd been enabled to do that. I was very aware, I was enabled to do that. The desire for me to give my life to Christ was was put in me, I don't know how, it was a miracle of God. I was born again, and I was very aware, I'm, I'm not what I was. My very internal, deepest workings changed. I, I, I ticked differently, my moral centre have been completely transformed. It was no longer the best thing in the world for me to to go out and get drunk and use and abuse. That, that was no longer my idea of a good time. My idea of a good time was was to go and be with Jesus. Just to be with Jesus. Whether that meant walking over the field opposite, opposite my house and just talking with him. Or sharing, sharing him with others. Or even just sitting down on my bed and writing on a pad, Jesus Christ is Lord and getting really excited about it. But I it was a miracle. A miracle of God had happened. I was, I'd become the light of the world. Previously, I was in darkness. I was born again, and I became the light of the world. It's what I am. If you're a believer, it's what you are. You might say, "Well, what? 
you mean we just don't do anything? Well, in a sense, in a sense, no. There is the there is the call to faith, to believe and trust. There is the call to repent. But all of those things, God enables. You see, the, the work of the gospel is God's work. In fact, in fact, everything needed to save you and to get you right with God was accomplished within the Trinity, within the Father, Son, and the Spirit, within God, and was settled and done and finished thousands of years ago. And so to become a Christian really is just God and his mercy inviting you into what he's accomplished, inviting you into what he's achieved. He's done it. God is the judge. God is the judged. It's staggering. God has dealt with his wrath towards sin in himself. The father's crushed the son. The son has voluntarily given himself up and allowed himself to become sin on our behalf. He willingly bore our sins in his body. And now the Holy Spirit brings that truth to light when he does what he did to me 18 years ago, when he opens the eyes of our heart, when we suddenly see it, we suddenly get it. It's the Holy Spirit applying into the hearts and lives of people what has been accomplished in Israel through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. You see, it's staggering. It's God's work. It's God's act. And then God breaks in. The Bible describes it like God who's, who said in the, in the original creation, let the light shine into, into darkness. That same God, he, he shines his glory into our hearts. How? By revealing Jesus. Jesus Jesus is face in that sense lights up with the with the knowledge of god's glory and it breaks into our heart and suddenly we're bowled over with jesus it's a miracle it's being born again that's what's happened and when that happens to you you're the light of the world so what do we do we shine and every moment you're not shining you're not being true to who you are every moment you're not shining you're living in the old instead of the new you're living in falsehood instead of the truth you're called to shine by the power of the holy spirit I want to just wrap up now by just uh, looking at verse 6 towards the end. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And uh, he commends, this is a commendation here. And I want to just mention this quickly, that it's, it's, it's very, very relevant that Jesus is saying, you've got to get your first love back. He says, but all hope is not lost because you still hate now, if you think that hate and love are opposites, you're going to struggle with this. You're going to think this doesn't make sense. Hate and love are not opposites. The opposite of love is lovelessness or coldness. The opposite of love is not hate. In fact, I would say this, and I think the Bible bears it out, that you cannot truly love if you don't know how to hate. And I would say there's way too little hate in the church. We don't hate sin enough. We don't hate the darkness enough. And as such, our love for Jesus and our love for righteousness is very often weak and insipid. Listen to the description of Jesus in Hebrews 1 verse 9. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, that's the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You want more joy? You want more joy? And fan into flame your love for righteousness. And fan into flame with that, your hatred for wickedness. Jesus commends the Ephesians. He says, you know, there's one thing I've just got to mention. You really hate it. What those Nicolaitans are up to, I do as well. I hate what they do. Now it seems like what the Nicolaitans were about was mingling idolatry with the worship of the one true God. So it's basically, in those days, idolatry permeated every part of society. That's the worship of false gods. I mean, it, it hit every part of life. And if and basically the reality was was that if you um, 
if you didn't get involved one way or another, you, you would suffer on a social level, you'd suffer financially in all these kinds of ways. So the Nicolaitans came and said, you know what, we can we can we can worship Jesus and still just you know, we can do the idolatry thing, but you know, we, we don't have to really mean what we say when we make statements like Caesar is Lord. We don't really have to mean it. And we can we can make it work. We can we can bring this together, but we can make it work. There's a way through. And the Ephesians in their discerning understanding of the gospel says, no, there is no way through with that. Only Jesus Christ is Lord. And out of these lips will never come a confession that anybody else is Lord. Jesus says, that's brilliant. I love that. It's the passion of Christ. You see him in the temple. 